In order to move software updates from the development team to production, companies do a variety of things. Some teams might email files to each other, or use FTP, or even floppy disks. Most companies today at least use version control systems like Git, together with separate servers for development and production. When code is ready to move to production, a build that is on the development server gets copied over to the production servers, and the production servers begin serving real users. This process is known as deployment, and over the last few decades, companies have started deploying more rapidly, even continuously, leading to faster iterations and better feedback loops between the software development team and the users of the product. A particularly effective version of this workflow is known as continuous delivery, which is when the deployment speed propagates to the overall organization and you really get good feedback loops throughout the organization. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about continuous delivery with David Rice from ThoughtWorks. He joins the show to give a short history of continuous delivery and how it actually looks in practice. What are the things that you actually need to put in place to get continuous delivery working? And of course, what is continuous delivery? What is continuous integration? What is continuous deployment? How do these things differ from one another? I hope you enjoy this episode. David Rice is a Managing Director with ThoughtWorks. David, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, happy to be here. So today we are going to be talking about continuous delivery. We have done some shows about this topic, but why don't we just start off with what is a definition of continuous delivery? So continuous delivery um, is really just uh, doing the work to make it possible to get changes of any type uh, in your software to, from idea to production um, as fast as possible. Um, because to most people, it's counterintuitive that if I'm just pushing my changes rapidly to production, surely that's going to um, lead to disaster. So continuous delivery is all the, all the things you put in place, specifically a deployment, a deployment pipeline at the center of it, to make sure that to to make that actually a more enjoyable, safer, more reliable way to work. Um, and that includes not just feature changes, but config changes, um, experiments that you want to put into production. Uh, and right. any, any type of system, too, not just simple systems, complex systems. So when did people start doing continuous delivery? Because today we, we, we have so many examples in the marketplace of people who are poster companies for continuous delivery. There's Amazon, Etsy, Netflix, of course. Uh, I mean, ThoughtWorks has been talking about continuous delivery for a long time. Um when did people start doing continuous delivery? I would love to get kind of the picture for how this topic has evolved over time. Well, there's probably, I think the answer to when people started doing it and when people started talking about it and, and, and taking an academic approach to figuring out how to get good at it, um, those are probably two different answers. Um, I'm sure there are companies that were doing this, doing things in a continuous delivery style in the 90s or maybe even the 80s for all I know. Uh, I mean, continuous integration started to be a thing in the late 90s. Um, and actually, if you look back on original papers uh, on continuous integration, particularly the Martin Fowler article, which is the, the definitive article, it talks about um, pushing out installers to make you know, self-service QA uh, possible. So there are, there are, there are bits uh, in continuous integration um, 
that, that was, was Martin Fowler talking about it in a hypothetical sense, or was he was this something that people were actually doing? Uh, people were actually doing it for for certain. Um, I mean, back in, in, when we, when we originally started talking about continuous integration, it wasn't fire up Jenkins in a corner and auto, and have a server running your tests. It was more of a, a way of working. Um, and it did, you know, and then eventually the, ser you know, the build servers, the CI servers did become part of what you did if you were practicing CI. And it was expected that, you know, you were generating an installer. Um, and this was the 90s, so that was, you know, kind of what people did. They generated an installer. So, so there was uh, talk of that in CI. And I'm sure people were, were starting to get to think, realize, oh, well, I can always have my software be deployable. I can always get it into a test environment. Maybe we should start pushing it into a production environment. So I'm, I'm, I guarantee there were companies that were doing this in the 90s. Um, but definitely the 2000s is when people started talking about it more. Um, I, can, I, the most, the only, I can only definitively give you an answer from the ThoughtWorks perspective, which is around 2006. Um, some of our consultants in London uh, presented at Agile 2006. They presented a paper called The Deployment Production Line. And I think that was one of the first instances of people really talking about how, what are the what are the principles of continuous delivery. Well, and so some people, probably the younger people in the audience, the only companies that they've worked at have had continuous delivery or something that resembles continuous delivery. But, you know, we're, talk we're talking about the 90s or even some companies today, I'm sure, uh, there probably are procedures like FTPing or like floppy disk or using email as your version control history. Like I, I remember when I was preparing for the show, I, I listened back to a software engineering radio episode. It was an interview with Jez Humble about continuous delivery. He obviously wrote, wrote the book on continuous delivery. And he was talking about how back in the day he had worked at some company where their delivery strategy basically involved FTP. So what were what were the band-aids? I mean, people didn't think of them as band-aids back in the day, but compared to what we have today, what were the the janky processes that people were doing in contrast to continuous delivery? <laughs> well, I mean, waterfall was the how most people worked. Uh, yeah, I guess you had you have four builds a year, so yeah, it doesn't really yeah, matter. Yeah, exactly. You, I mean, so I mean, my, prior to working in the tools division, I was a consultant for a decade at ThoughtWorks, and you know, the classic is in, in bank four releases a year. Retail's even worse, three releases a year because you know, when right before Thanksgiving, we freeze for three months so we don't lose the ability to to make our money. So that was it. It was it was gates. It was about sign offs and gates uh, and doing work in, in big batches because you know, obviously sending a build over to QA and getting their sign off and then all the all the painful cycles of fix these 12 bugs okay now it's still not ready now fix these bugs and then handing it off to an operations team to do performance testing and those sorts of or the performance testing team actually I'd encounter um, so there would be all these strange teams like performance testing teams that would that would exist you know the, so it was people used gates as a way to approve um, um, that it, that it, that software was good enough. So that's what people did. Obviously, that's that was slow and painful, uh, very slow and painful now, to work. And so, has that changed because some key technologies have been enabled? Or is it more of just cultural shifts, or is it confluence of the two? I think it's a confluence of the two. There's certainly much better tooling around automation of infrastructure, in particular. Um, because I, I, one of the one of the big problems uh, back in the day <laughs> um, with uh, you know if you even if you wanted to do CD setting up an environment say 
for you know for bank for a bank a retail bank setting up an environment where you could actually run all the middleware and either connect to test test regions on a mainframe or, or simulate that it took weeks uh, and a lot of hardware and a lot of money uh, and and that's huge, a problem because one of the key parts of a really good deployment pipeline is your testers can say, I want this build in this environment and just push a button and make it happen and then they can go. Um, so, so that right there was one of the big problems. So have there been some specific fundamental technology changes that make CD easier to do for the average company? Like I, I, cloud, for example, I think, uh, I think, I think of AWS as having a sort of like this latent effect on a lot of things in software development that now we take for granted or maybe they have snuck up on us because they kind of happen in an indirect way but cl cloud seems pretty crucial to getting cd going whether you're talking about like how easy it is to spin up replicative environments or um or i don't know maybe even just the, i guess the compounding interest of cloud where you know somebody builds a new technology with aws and then somebody else use leverages that to build some other new technology and then we just get Sure. Um, you know, great developer tools as a result of that. Sure, absolutely. Cloud cloud is crucial. And not just, you know, oh, AWS. It's AWS's influence on what people now expect in their enterprise data center as well. Um, and there's obviously all kinds of of new... Uh, every week there's another cluster manager or, or something else to make it even easier to, to move. Your, you're, you're literally moving single function calls around data, flying around data centers to figure out the best possible place to run. So clearly that's huge. And it's not just... Uh, the fact that I have elastic compute resources, it's also all the tooling around saying, I want 10 of these to look exactly like that, and I want you to bring them up for me, uh, and being able to script that and automate that um, is clearly key. Um, because if you need a team to build an environment for you, um, or if hardware, if it's extremely difficult to provision hardware, and then you can't parallelize your tests uh, to make your pipeline run faster, those sorts of things, um, it, your, your pipeline is going to be slow, and then you're, you're going to struggle to get to um, to the promised land. That said, while the technology is crucial and probably would have never happened with uh, CD, would have never happened without some of these advancements, it's the cultural changes that I think are the bigger deal. Um, blowing up the silos, getting everyone to feel responsible for a single goal, uh, and that cultural change, I think, is a much bigger deal than the technology changes in terms of why CD has happened. Yeah, and you write about this a lot. You write about even finer-grained cultural changes than the high-level idea of breaking down silos. You know, you're, when you're writing, you write some articles about getting CD within a company working. You, you know, you write that you, know, you can't really just pick up tools and then just expect everybody to adopt continuous delivery there's there are a number of cultural processes cultural norms practices that need to be in place yep. first so what are those what are those cultural practices that need to be in place in order for cd to work uh well the biggest one i think would probably be just be everyone believing that it's possible <laughs> uh that's because i think the, the standard response to cd uh is oh my gosh that can't possibly work we can't possibly push every change into production um, so there, there's there's inherent fear. Um, sometimes it's you know sometimes it actually is fear of something going really bad in production. Other times it's fear of losing power because when you get to sign off on a build and say and bless it for production, uh, that re represents a lot of power. Uh, and I think some people might be afraid to to let that go. Um, and then there's a lack of trust um, also between 
QA operations and dev. And I think the DevOps movement um, goes a long way towards uh, addressing those issues. Uh, and I think that's a good approach to driving the cultural changes is, is, is if you have some champions who want to figure out how to bring a DevOps culture to your company. And DevOps and CD are not the same thing. They have, there's, there's a lot in common. Neither is a subset of the other. Um, but in terms of addressing the fear that needs to be eliminated in order to get CD in place, um, taking a look at the DevOps movement is, is what, I would, what I would recommend. Um, beyond fear, um, the cultural changes are really, it gets into really how your teams work, um, not, making, uh, not making testing a sign-off, a gating activity, um, developers really believing in self-testing code, uh, which is primarily writing unit tests, but really different types of automated tests. Uh, it's getting your testers to not be afraid of test automation, because um, actually uh, all test automation means is you're automating the repetitive bits, the regression part of your test suite, and you're asking your testers, you're telling your testers, hey, it's your brain that we value most. We want you to do the exploratory testing. We want you to think about how this system can break and just getting everyone uh, past their fears. Mm. So when you're talking about the DevOps movement relative to CD, I, so I, I think I, a number of shows I've done about DevOps or um, related topics are with, sometimes is with older companies, and there's oftentimes a DevOps evangelist or like a small team within that larger company that's saying, hey, we need to move in this direction. We need to break down silos, et cetera. And it's oftentimes a difficult battle for them to establish these practices in an enterprise that has things in place, th these traditions um, th that make it more slow-moving. And um, you know, now it is as important as ever, since every company is becoming a software company, you really have no choice but to really look at these things and move in the direction of the software industry. Even if you think it's wrong or you think it's like debatable to go towards DevOps, you basically should go in that direction because the rest of the industry is and you're not going to be able to hire people who have similar mentalities and so on. So I think a lot of people who, who are listening to this show who 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 um, who are interested in DevOps are a type of person that is at at that large enterprise and they're like the forward thinking person in the enterprise with some people that have been there for 10 or 12 years that have the, all these old ancestral practices. So for that type of person that's listening and they're in the process of, of trying to revamp this older company, how can they begin to institute practices for CD? Because CD sounds like, continuous delivery sounds like something that's kind of hard to to get going, what are the steps, what are the, the small steps to take to start to bootstrap the process and move in the continuous delivery direction? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I mean, the first, I think, you, like you said, is identify uh, the, who the champions are going to be. Uh, I think you're going to need to find someone from QA, find someone from operations, find someone from uh, development. Um, Upper management? Uh, absolutely upper management. <laughs> uh, absolutely, because one of the, it's funny, I think I skipped this when I gave you my, my definition of CD, but one of the things about CD is that the whole point is to have your software in an always deployable state so that the business can, can say we need to deploy now. Uh, it's, that's a big difference from continuous deployment, which is every change goes to prod. Continuous delivery is about giving, um, quote unquote, the business um, the power to deploy when they want 
want to. And really, that, I mean, what builds trust more between IT and, and the business than that? So yes, uh, upper management too, I would say. Um, so then once you, have, once you have your champions in place, probably identify a team where you want to give it a try. Um, Greenfield is always going to be easier than uh, legacy. Um, but at the same time, Greenfield might not be the most strategic thing and might not be important uh, and is therefore never really going to get the energy that's going to make anything succeed. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say avoid the hard, the hard stuff. You know, one of, the, one of the tenets is if it hurts, um, do it as often as possible until, the pain, until it's not painful. So uh, I wouldn't say avoid legacy, but Greenfield is certainly easier. Um, and then you also you need to do a bit of assessment around whether your, your technical practices are actually ready for CD. Um, do you have everything in source control? It seems like a no-brainer these days. We still see places where it's not, uh, that's not reality. Um, are you practicing configuration management? And, um, which is, I think, a step beyond what most people think of putting everything in source control. It's can you point to a specific re revision of your entire production system, infrastructure, how your firewalls are configured, how, how your router, uh, not, probably not your router. Most people don't take it to the routers, although you could, but you know, how, uh, maybe your application routers, um, your code, everything. Can you say, I want this version in this environment, and can you run a script, and that happens. So you need that. And then do you just have a culture around automation? Do you have that in place? Um, are there repetitive tasks that humans are still doing? Um, if humans are doing them, uh, repetitive tasks, that's really problematic because A, it's boring and you're not really utilizing what humans are good at and it, humans are mistake prone and it's slow. Um, so start, start across all those places and, and then once you're feeling good there, then you can start taking a look at actually instituting deployment pipelines uh, and really getting to uh, a proper CD implementation. And so around these conversations, we also hear the word microservices a lot. Like these these older companies are often, you know, these types of champions within an older enterprise are often saying, hey, we need to move towards microservices. This, this is going to let us be more decoupled. This is going to help us do the DevOps type of stuff. But, you know, if you have this small team of champions or one single evangelist, they obviously can't do everything. So what is the sequencing? If they're trying to get towards this organization that has CD and microservices and DevOps and stuff, should they be doing all these things at once? Should they migrate uh, to microservices at the same time as they start implementing CD? Because, I mean, there there is some, like you know, killing two birds with one stone there, right? Like, you know, you, you, um, you say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do something that's like super low risk, like, you know, the job board, we're gonna move the job board to a microservice. And at the same time, we're gonna, you know, then you've got your greenfield, right. uh, you know, you've, 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 um, you've identified your greenfield. And so you can throw it on a continuous, um, you know, continuous delivery pipeline. And, and there you go. You've killed sure. two birds with one stone, and then you can show everybody, hey, I got the job board on continuous delivery. It's really easy. Now you should start moving the, I don't know, the credit card transaction processing system. Uh, I don't know. What do you think of that? Like, what's what's the sequencing? What's the strategy? So the answer is going to be it depends. It's going to depend a lot on your people. Um, I, I think in most circumstances, trying to do, implement CD and bring microservices in and you know whatever else, that sounds complicated to me. Um, I, I think the litmus test should be, do I have the right people? Is it of sufficient importance to the business that we'll get the resources we need? And do I expect to see material change in a two to three month time frame? 
Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily address it as, am I building out a, continue, a, a deployment pipeline? Am I bringing microservices into my company for the first time? I wouldn't necessarily look at it from, from those perspective. It's, I think it's more about, it, is this reasonably important to the company that people care? And will I see material change in how we're working in a two to three month time period? And do I, do I have the right people working on it? So you mentioned the relationship between a CD system and version control. Mm-hmm. What what is that? What does that relationship look like in more detail in practice? Because you, you know you've written about trunk based deployment. I'm sorry, trunk trunk based development. So maybe you want to talk talk a little bit more about what are the version control strategies. So obviously, you know, you get every get as much of your code as possible in. Uh, in version control has a place to start, but once you get that, like, what does your branching strategy look like? You know, plenty of companies have different branching strategies. Yes, yeah, so this is, I think this is one of the more controversial bits, and this is actually more about continuous integration um, than continuous delivery, but, con- I mean, continuous integration is a proper subset of continuous delivery, so it, so it impacts CD. Um, so one of the tenets of CI, and a- actually... By their original definitions, CI and trunk-based development are actually the exact same thing, um, which is everyone's checking into trunk or master or head or whatever you happen to call it um, on a a daily basis, ideally multiple times a day, and there are no long-lived branches, and your code is self-testing, i.e. there are unit tests to validate a change after every merge. Um, So the... uh, Due to semantic diffusion, CI now means you're also running um, a CI server um, to automate the, the self-testing. Um, so by definition, if you're not tr- practicing trunk-based development, if you're not working in master, you're not doing CI. Um, and obviously, lots of teams, particularly now that Git uh, has won, um, lots of teams have branches. Um, and still say they're practicing continuous integration. And this is really, you have to decide how much you care about the original definition versus our teams doing good work and getting the job done. Um, I struggle with it, actually. Um, I look at teams with long-lived branches, and I know they're not really practicing CI uh, because they have long-lived branches. And when you have long-lived branches, you don't really know how those changes are going to work with each other. You have no way to validate that that the changes in each of the individual branches actually will play well together when they're all in production. Um, Yet there's clearly a lot of teams doing working that way and and working well. Uh, People who care about CI and CD um, are now saying short-lived feature branches are okay. because that seems a reasonable way to work locally and then merge it into master and, you know, reasonably reasonably quickly um, whether things will work or or not. Um, And the reason having those long-lived branches and not really knowing if those changes are going to work well together, the reason that's a problem from a CD perspective is that if you build out a deployment pipeline, one of the benefits is you know point of a deployment pipeline is actually to figure out why a change shouldn't go to production. Uh, and you always, the, the whole point of uh, when you're building out your deployment pipeline is design it to fail as fast as possible so that you know as quickly as possible with as fast a feedback loop as possible that something isn't going to work in production. And when you have long-lived branches, there's nothing fast about finding out that something's broken. It actually could take days or weeks or months to find out that something's broken. So it's actually counter to 
the principles of how you build a deployment pipeline. Why is that hard to institute? Why is it hard to get people to shift from to shift from long live the idea of a long live feature branch that you eventually merge in, you figure out how to get going? Uh, why is that kind of like disjointed with continuous delivery? Are you saying why is it hard to convince people to do uh, practice trunk based development, or why is why is using Git branches counter to continuous delivery? Well, it's sort of a com- sort of a combination of those two things. So you know, you 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 mentioned that there are companies that they're like, oh yeah, we're doing continuous delivery, or we want to be doing continuous delivery, and yet the behavior of the developers is that they have longer lived feature branches. Explain. Wh- so I guess like first of all, why is that an like talk a little bit more why that is an anti-pattern and then why there are people who continue to do this despite being told it's an anti-pattern or despite knowing it's an anti-pattern why is it hard for them to 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 to, to get them to to do the trunk-based development where they're interacting with the master more aggressively sure so uh i guess why i think it's an anti-pattern is that you're delaying finding out whether uh your changes work um, with everyone else's changes uh, and the whole point of CD is to find out as early as possible. Well, I shouldn't say the whole point, but like as I said, a, a core principle to designing your deployment pipeline is finding out as soon as possible that something isn't going to work in prod, so that you can fix it. Because the earlier you fix, you can fix a problem. The cheaper it is to fix, the faster you can fix it. Um, if you have long the feature branches, you're delaying finding out that something is broken for days, weeks, months. Um, and it's going to be a lot harder to sort out once you find out it's broken. Um, so that's why I think long-lived branches are um, r- highly problematic if you're trying to implement CD. Why people don't want to move towards working on master, I, I think everyone's got different reasons. And like I said, I see people doing good work. So I, I can't necessarily, you know, I don't want to just preach endlessly to them and tell them what they're doing is wrong. Um, but I think there's several reasons. One is, well, that's just the way Git works, right? And Git is successful, and that's the way Git works, so, we sh- so I should work that way. Um, the other is people just mentally can't even comprehend how a team of 20 devs could all be working in master and not cause problems. Um, another is one of the uh, core techniques to uh, having everyone check into master all the time is feature toggles, um, which is... Basically, everything to do with a particular feature is flagged on or off, so then you can actually check in incomplete work into master and it uh, it's flagged off and and people won't 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 see it um, and I think people have had some bad experiences with feature toggles because um, even before they were they were named feature toggles the the concept has been around, and I think most people have had an experience where they never get cleaned up and then your system has hundreds of flags driving behavior, which is obvi- obviously ugly. Um, um, but if you're, if you're doing feature toggles well, uh, actually the most important thing about implementing feature toggles is being very disciplined about getting rid of them. Okay, so I want to move a little more towards the conversation of implementing CD and what this looks like at pra- in practice, at, particularly at a productive CD organization. When I think of, of continuous deliver, I think of it as this pipeline of of stages that a push of code goes through, um, or a ch- or a change of any type. You know, if you're talking more organizationally, maybe you know the the design team can also make some change, and maybe it's not necessarily a code a code change. Um, 
it all maybe it eventually propagates to a code change. But in any case, I think of this pipeline of stages that a change has to go through, and the pipeline is perhaps partly automated, partly manual. What are some of the stages of a CD pipeline? What are some different patterns that people use to building their pipelines? So the key pattern is fail fast. Um, so you, you want to do your unit, typically unit tests are your fastest feedback loop, and that's um, information for the development team. If you have a sophisticated QA team, they, they, they're probably interested in unit test too because you know, if you have a really solid test team, they're willing to put a lot of your regression checks down into the unit level because they're much faster. So typically the first stage is running your unit tests. Sometimes you have to do some compilation uh, beforehand or some packaging beforehand before you can actually execute the tests. Ideally, you don't have to. Um, so that's the first. Uh, unit test is typically first. Uh, and then the next stage beyond that, you might get some longer running tests, maybe some end-to-end -end tests, maybe some integration tests. Um, that take a little longer, uh, and the reason you break them into stages is if you have a pro if if there's a problem with just the dev team, you don't want to wait till your integration and your functional tests are running if you can get that feedback from the unit test. So you just break it into stages, and, and it and it fails faster. Now I know that sounds obvious, but that wasn't how people were working prior to um, prior to uh, Jez and Dave Farley and, and, and Chris Reed and Dan North talking about what a deployment pipeline might look like. Um, and then beyond your end-to-end -end tests, um, which is really, in my opinion, you shouldn't just have random end-to-end -end tests. It should be identified as a regression suite. Um, in my opinion, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing story-level testing um, with an end-to-end -end test. That should be um, a regression test. Then you get into your longer running stages, which will be typically be performance testing. Maybe you have some automated security testing, and and performance testing. There's you know there's a dozen flavors of performance testing. Whether it's uh, response time for your users under load, whether it's soak testing, um, there's a, there's many different flavors. Those typically take longer. So um, if you're using a good tool, you can actually model what's called a fan out, uh, where your, your your pipeline actually goes wide on you, and you're running all of those in parallel. And then when they're all green, they'll fan back into um, a configuration of your app that's green and, and can be deployed into prod uh, whenever you're ready. And then as you move to the right in your pipeline, you're likely to get to um, a manual stage. Uh, it could be multiple manual stages, um, uh, but the last one being, uh, you know, deploy to prod, uh, which according to the pure definition of CD must be manual because the business decides when to deploy. Uh, in a continuous delivery setting, that would be automatic. Well, so in a, so a manual approval stage, so, so these, these prior stages that are not manual, basically the build hits the stage, automated tests run against that build. If they all pass, it moves to the next stage. And if it gets to a manual stage, then... Maybe it runs through some integration tests, and then you have to click a button to make it go to the next stage. Or maybe you are told, hey, at this stage, you need to do these manual tests and make sure nothing looks out of whack. We want some human in the loop. Um, sure. Is that, is that accurate? Is that, yep. is that an accurate depiction of the manual Manual approvals, okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So let's, yeah let's, manual, manual testing isn't ideal, but it's possible because um, that's still kind of a gate. Um, but it's definitely, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, you're on the journey. If, you're, if you've gotten to the point where you have 
multiple automated test stages, and, and then you do have a manual test stage to the right. As long as that's not really the, the, the same old gate and sign-off process, you're on the journey. It's totally fine. People do that for sure. So these tests that occur at different stages, who is responsible for writing these tests? And how do you, you know, um, how is this different than, you know, we, we've had we've had many years of, of people encouraging, like, uh, right? I mean, right, just write tests, write different kinds of tests, like tests, we have the test, test-driven development movement. What's different now? What is different about the types of tests that we're writing and the res- and who is responsible for writing these tests? So uh, who's responsible is the easy part, um, everyone. <laughs> That's always going to be my answer to any question, who is responsible, it's everyone. But I, I mean, operations obviously isn't responsible for writing, writing, writing unit tests. But I mean, traditionally, unit tests uh, belong to the developers. Uh, that's does the code work as expected in isolation uh, so not hooked up to other systems um, not generally not in an end-to-end setting um, that but testers can get involved in unit testing um, because I mean if someone who's written a, a selenium test that takes forever you know maybe they've it's because maybe they've automated 20 edge cases through the UI and that obviously takes forever wouldn't it be better to just test the single UI interaction for an error once and then have all the edge cases, you know, the full set of 20 edge cases driven down into the unit testing layer and, and cover it there. Now, if that's going to happen, if you're going to do it that way and you really want your testers to understand how the full regression works, they're going to need to get involved in unit tests. They're going to need to understand what's in unit tests. So that, that's going to start requiring that, your tester, that some of your testers be more technical. Um, one, and, then, and then when you move, when you get into integration testing, when you get into your end-to-end testing, whether it's... Um, Selenium or, or, or something similar. Um, developers have to be involved. It's programming. Uh, ideally, you have testers who are technical enough to be involved. Uh, and that's not to say your testers should just become automators and programmers. You don't want that. A tester's job is to figure out how your system can be better, just like everyone else on the team, and think, uh, think creatively about how to break it in order to make it better and do the exploratory testing and understand when a new features coming in, the, the testers generally have the best perspective on what the, that the impact on, on the rest of the system is going to be. Uh, so we still need that. Um, but the developers and testers need to spend a lot of time together if you're going to have a solid automated regression suite. It's not, it's not oh, the developers have to do that or, oh, the testers have to do that. They really need to be working together. And you pointed out in an article that the unit test suite has to be fast, and I agree with this. Why, why is that suite so important? And, and, and if an organization has this barrage of unit tests that's super slow, that takes a really long time, is there a straightforward way to speed up that process? And should they like spend a bunch of time refactoring their test infrastructure if they have this super slow test process? Yeah. So that's a great question. Uh, it's a question I still don't have a great answer for. Um, I think the most important thing, if you're lucky enough to be on a Greenfield app, you have to absolutely be a hard liner about fast unit tests. You have, you know, don't let it get beyond a couple minutes uh, at all costs. Um, if you're in a situation where you have slow running unit tests, uh, it's actually very challenging. If, it, if it's a legacy system of size, it's actually very challenging to ever get that back down to a couple minutes. It's, it's almost impossible. So you get into a situation where you need to throw hardware at it. Um, and that's not a that's not a great situation to be. Um, so then maybe you need to start digging into okay, do I, is it a monolith? Do I need to split it up into something smaller? Um, 
so that I can get more something more manageable. And again, that, I, I think I, I point out in the article you're referencing, that's actually a real tough situation because if you have slow running unit tests, it becomes really hard to figure out how to split up your monolith into smaller pieces uh, because you're sitting there waiting for the test to complete every time. Yeah, so most teams tend to throw hardware at that problem uh, and it, it's not great um, because your pre-commit involves pushing your changes off to somewhere in the cloud. Uh, or your data center uh, while your unit tests are split across a dozen machines and then you get your feedback. So, so maybe throw hardware at it so that you can get fast enough feedback while you're figuring out how to split things up, uh, split your monolith up into smaller chunks where you can then get back to fast running unit tests. Um, I see too many teams willing to throw hardware at unit tests, say, oh, I, just, I can just throw more hardware at it. I don't need my unit tests to be fast. And it's just a really painful way to work. And you're, and you're kind of you're losing out most of the benefit of unit tests. One of the if you're coding, one of the great things about fast unit tests is you can go in and experiment with any change to design or architecture or, or your model that you want, and quickly find out whether it's going to work. And you can really explore um, what you can do to improve your code base. And if you have slow running unit tests, you really lose out on that. So another angle that you talk about is this relentless automation being an aspect of an organization that gets CD right. Obviously, test automation is one thing. What are the other fundamental things that we need to automate? And what what are the types of perhaps manual, I don't know if you want to use that word, manual operations that prevent an organization from getting to CD? <laughs> Oh, there's, there's infinite. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll cover some of the more obvious ones that, that we come across. Uh, deploying to production. Um, that is a big one. Um, I, I think that uh, anyone who's been in the industry more than five years has probably um, brought in sleeping bags for the weekend um, to, to babysit a deployment. Um, that should never happen. Uh, the database is another place to look. Um, I've many, many uh, deployment processes involve a manual step for the DBAs to step in and migrate data, uh, or add ta or you know, or, or alter tables. So that, that's another, another obvious place to look for where you can automate. Um, and it's not trivial. There's a great book on refactoring databases uh, written by a colleague of mine, Pramod Salage, that is um, fantastic because um, you really have to change how you think about how you change your database schema and how you migrate data if you want to automate it. Um, th those are the two places that, that are most obvious to start. Yeah, I, I always I think back to this. I worked at one company where we, we would do a lot of integrations and um, I don't want to say exactly what type of integrations they were, but the integrations were always similar but they were but it was hard to think of a way that was so generalizable that you could just write a script around it so a lot of times it was like a process of you know you've got script a over here and script b over here and you've got to run them in some sequence and you you know the parameters change depending on which integration you're doing and and that was one of the burdens i felt at that particular place where i was like you know it's tricky because i don't know how i would automate this in a general fashion um, and yet I am, every time we do these integrations, I'm wasting like one or two days doing this kind of like half automated, half manual thing. And it's, I feel, it feels like such a drain on, on the productivity of the organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I, I imagine that occurs everywhere. <laughs> uh, I think that's what I actually think that's one of the harder things to get right. Um, there, when, when you have like something that is like somewhat automatable, yeah, but also yeah. somewhat variable from case to case. Sure, and also typically you're dependent on third parties having, you know, same, oh yeah, same test, oh test, yeah, yeah, same test environments to work against. Um, you know, I mean, the first, the most obvious thing to do isn't a, is is just get your design patterns right. Isolate yourself from other people's nonsense, uh, and if and if you do have ten integrations that are basically the same thing, come up with the right abstractions on your side so that it doesn't look like ten different things. Um, and then when you talk about, you know, your your the design of your deployment pipeline, well, that's painful, slow stuff. So it should be further down the line uh, on your in your deployment pipeline. You also write about these feedback loops in a continuous delivery system. What are the feedback loops that exist in a typical continuous delivery pipeline? Right. So it's. I mean, that's that's really just what are the stages. Um, and the reason I th- I think the reason I call out the feedback loops is that um, I think I think many people think of the difference between CI and CD is that C that CI is a build loop and CD is a linear structure. And CD clearly is a deployment pipeline, I should say, is a linear structure. And the deployment pipeline clearly is linear. linear. It's, you know, it's, the visualization is always left to right um, from a commit to production environment. Um, yet, along the way are all these little feedback loops. And the whole point is you're getting feedback along, you know, all along the way to tell you that it's not going to work, it's not going to work, it's not going to work. So unit tests are a feedback loop. Integration tests are a feedback loop. Uh, security, automated security testing is a feedback loop. Um, getting feedback from your users uh, because you can quickly deploy to any environment is an important feedback loop. Once, you're really, once you really have CD down, it's trivial to get new stuff in front of users before it's in production uh, and get feedback. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to all be in line um, in your deployment pipeline. The fact, that, the fact that you are practicing CD and you can push any version of the app to any environment, you can then do uh, your user testing, all, different varieties of user testing offline um, and, and, and get really good feedback loop and then you know, get, that, get that back to the dev team. Um, it doesn't all have to be in line in your deployment pipeline. Uh, the, the benefits of CD go beyond that. Uh, and there's, uh, there's um, lastly, I think something people don't necessarily think about, although a lot of people talk about it, specifically the companies you mentioned earlier, um, is after deployment, there's more feedback loops to be had, which is uh, monitoring what's going on in prod. Uh, and that can be important too, particularly uh, when you're talking about uh, microservices, an explosion of microservices, it, there's a point where it's impossible to actually test all the, all the combinations. Uh, if, if you is, have. There some, is, is there some combination where people are doing something like, um, and I've never seen this before, I just thought of this, but like maybe you, you have a change and you have a stage in your pipeline where the, the build, you know, maybe it gets deployed to uh, some, you know, maybe maybe it's a server that's running mock traffic, or it's a server that's running one percent of user traffic, and you have, and basically you just put it, you just put it into this test bed, and then you have the lo- you have the monitoring going, and then if you have no anomalies, you could have like an automated uh, roll forward, you know, sure. thanks even, to the the. Lo- 
There's even a do, name do, for do it. People... <laughs> oh, what is that? Uh, canary deployment. Oh, that's canary. Okay. Yeah, that, or canary release, I guess. Is, is... Do, do, well, do people automate that though? Because I I typically hear about that like that's more of a manual thing. Um. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. So you, you'd automate it by say you know running you know scraping or whatever. Like whatever if you see an error. Yeah, yeah. If you don't see errors for this period of time, then roll it out. I have no idea whether people are automating that, um, hmm. but I'm guessing someone thought about it and someone's trying it. <laughs> so I've heard that these super productive organizations like a Netflix or somebody never rolls back. Yeah. Is that your experience? Yes. Uh, I think that rollback, it's, I, I think the term rolling back and rolling forward are losing their relevance period. Um, but rollback, I mean, back in the era of three or four deployments a year, that's where rollback is, is reality. Um, but once, you're, once you have a deployment pipeline in place and everyone's on board and you, can, and you're, you have solid monitoring and production and you can get changes deployed fast, it's about mean time to recovery. Um, who cares if it's rolling forward or rolling backward or whatever processes you need in place? And obviously, I, I talked about database migrations earlier. That really complicates whether you're going to be rolling forward or rolling backward. It, it, whether you're rolling forward or backward doesn't matter. It's are, what are you doing to lower your mean time to recovery? How fast can you recover when there's a production problem? And are you learning from it? Are you conducting the postmortems and figuring out how you can be better when you do have downtime? Yeah. Now, in the earlier days of continuous delivery, most of the, well, a lot of the decisions that people were making were what do we build type of decisions? How are we, or how are we deploying our own Jenkins server or something like that? How are we rolling our own continuous delivery pipeline? Now there is a bunch of stuff you can buy, and obviously you are working on, um, you're working at ThoughtWorks, and full disclosure, ThoughtWorks is a sponsor of this show. Um, but you, you work on, I think you work on GoCD and SnapCI, um, so it's continuous delivery and continuous integration software, and so what, when, when, like, let's talk abstractly, when, when a developer is looking at different systems, continuous integration systems, continuous deployment systems, for their buying decisions, what are the axes that they should be evaluating um, when they are trying to find the best thing to take off the shelf and use? So if you're really talking about CD and you really want a deployment pipeline, uh, you got to make sure that the tool actually provides you the right modeling tools for building a deployment pipeline. Um, and I say that because eh, some, pe some people care and some people don't. I mean, as you know, it's software. You, one can solve pretty much any problem with any tool with enough programming. Um, but if, you, if, you're gonna, if you're serious about wanting to do deployment pipelines, your life will be much better if you pick a tool that actually provides you first order uh, concepts for modeling your pipeline. So I'd start there. Uh, then you need to consider whether you want something on-premise um, or, or you want to work in the cloud. Um, because there's um, different sets of tools there. And obviously there's a lot of space in between, which is I'm working in the cloud on AWS, but it's basically a private data center. Um, so that means you really kind of need a non-prem solution that's friendly to cloud technologies uh, versus something like SnapCI, which is I don't want to own any servers anywhere. Uh, I'm using Heroku, I'm using AWS, I'm using GitHub, that sort of stuff. 
Um, so th then you need something like, uh, like Snap. Next is what are the technologies I'm using and is the tool compatible um, with those technologies? Um, some tools like GoCD um, uh, can run on multiple platforms and, and, and are, work with most any technology. Some tools are very specific to certain, technolo uh, certain technologies or certain cloud platforms. Um, so you need to make sure um, that your stack is, is, is reasonably supported. Now on that point, I'll, I'll point out that um, if your tech stack, it, 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 how do I want to say this? If the compatibility of your CD tool and your tech stack is a big thing, I'd take a, I'd take a hard look at how you've actually implemented um, the, your, your deployment pipeline stages, how you're approaching automation. You should never be programming your CD server or your CI server. You should have scripts that do all your automation in your source repository that you can run from a command line. And most of your build stages should be just executing those scripts. And not everyone sees it that way. Um, so technology compatibility shouldn't be a huge issue, but it can be, particularly if you're wedging a lot of your automation into the CI or the CD server. So we're obviously nearing the end of our time. What is coming down the pike in terms of continuous delivery? How are the tools that we're using going to change in the near future? Uh, I think that the tools are just starting to figure out what to do with all of this cloud technology. Um, and when I say cloud technology, I mean cluster schedulers, I mean Docker, I mean basically, you know, fast provisioning of an arbitrary amount of compute resources anywhere in your ecosystem. Uh, I think the tools are just starting to figure out what that means to CD. So I don't, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm more answering by what I think the next set of problems to be addressed is um, than what it's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, well, David, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation, and I think the listeners are going to appreciate it a lot. Um, and obviously, thank you for being part of ThoughtWorks, which is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I definitely appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Cool. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. I, I really appreciate you coming on. I, I enjoyed this a lot. Okay, great. Take care. O'Reilly is hosting Bot Day, a conference in San Francisco on October 19th, 2016, that offers the strategic and technical insight that you need to start implementing AI-driven conversational interfaces that can talk to your customers, make your employees more productive, and streamline your business. Check out Bot Day from O'Reilly, coming October 19th, 2016.